Some new phone apps promise to transform your travels. But when Stephanie Rosenblum goes on vacation, she tries to keep her eyes on what's all around her. I don't like to use a lot of technology when I'm traveling. I find it gets in the way of my experience and being present. So I try not to use the phone too much, except to take photos. Coming up, the New York Times travel columnist looks at this year's most useful gadgets and travel apps. You'll have a hard time putting your camera down when you visit Iceland. The landscape is so dramatic. You hear it being described as otherworldly, which it truly is. We'll hear what takes a Seattle DJ back to Iceland year after year. Among the photogenic sights on Ireland's Dingle Peninsula is a wild dolphin that likes to pose with visitors in the harbor. I suppose what makes Fungi the Dingle Dolphin so amazing is the fact that it, like a lot of people, came to Dingle 32 years ago and never left. Tips for travel tech, visiting Iceland, and the Dingle Peninsula in Ireland are all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a lot of rugged beauty to explore in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. In just a bit, we'll look at what's drawing record numbers of visitors to Iceland each summer. And we'll take a closer look at my favorite part of Ireland on the scenic Dingle Peninsula. But first, how much do you rely on your smartphone and other technologies to avoid long lines and other travel hassles? Stephanie Rosenblum writes about trends in travel technology for The New York Times. And she joins us now with examples of the latest developments in travel tech. Stephanie, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Boy, you've got a responsibility, an ongoing responsibility with your work at the New York Times to know what's up in tech for travelers. So what What is exciting <laughs> these days? What should we know about for those of us who travel a lot and want to not be left behind by not just razzle-dazzle tech stuff, but by tech changes that really are in our interest? Absolutely. Well, I think one of the essential things, particularly for those traveling to countries where they don't speak the language, is Google Translate. It has gotten much better. If you gave it a try many years ago and you decided to try it again more recently, you'll see a big difference in its various capabilities. You can use it in many different ways. So, you know, you can use it to write out a phrase in your current language and have it translate into another language and vice versa. You can even hold the phone, use your phone's camera, hold it over a menu item, and it can translate, sort of overlay that language. Uh, and it's free. It's an amazing app considering it costs nothing. Yeah. So that's essential. You wrote about Google Pixel Buds. What is that? Yes. These are earbuds from Google. I think they're in the range of about $140. So they're not inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are translation earbuds. So what you would do is like you would tap your right earbud and you would say, "Okay, Google, help me speak French. And let's say you're in a restaurant in Paris and the waiter asks you what you want and you say it in English and on your phone out loud, it will say it in French for the waiter to hear. When the waiter responds in French, you will hear it translated into English in your ear. My goodness, have you used this? (laughs) I have used it now. I've used it in fairly controlled situations, and it worked very well. Because there is a lot of hustle and bustle in a restaurant, so that might—and waiters don't speak really clearly, so— Precisely. And it also does do a translation in writing on your phone, so you can see it written out, so both parties can kind of look at the phone. The way I usually do translation, if it's somewhere where we really don't speak the language, like when I was in Japan, Mm -hmm. I just hand my phone to the the driver, and he hands it back to me, and it's fun, and we enjoy that process, the back and forth. I actually met the father of a and b host in Agriturismo in Italy, and he was just kind of rattling around the farm, and his sort of goal in life was to charm the tourists that came here as an old debonair Italian man. 
and he would flirt with his uh, tablet. And he had one of these programs, and he would say things, and he was a master. He wasn't very good at anything else technology except for flirting with the translating uh, app. I think that's an art, and he may have a book in that. <laughs> now, in preparation for our discussion, Stephanie, I was thinking, what areas of tech actually help me? Because I'm not a very enthusiastic user of technical tools when I'm traveling, but certain mm-hmm. tools just absolutely help. I've decided in order to be a smart traveler, you need to have a smartphone these days. It's just you've got to have a smartphone, and then you've got to be sure you know what apps are going to be helpful to you. My Flight View app tells me what terminal my, my flight is leaving from, and that alone is really important as you take a taxi to the airport. You know what terminal you're supposed to go on, mm, and, and mm-hmm. these various Flight View apps are, are I think, wonderful. Uh, there's easy train schedule apps these days. Uh, of course, uh, you've got your Google Maps. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, very easy to download apps in cities so you can find the loaner bikes where you can park them and where you can pick them up. If you want to talk to people at home, of course, there's various ways to Skype and almost for free be in touch with your loved ones. What apps do you use when you're in a foreign country that, that you find not just bells and whistles but actually of mm-hmm. practical value? Like you, I don't like to use a lot of technology when I'm traveling. I find it gets in the way of my experience and being present. So Mm -hmm. I try not to use the phone too much. But one app that I love that actually is compatible with what we're talking about is something called Live Trekker. What it allows you to do is, you know, when you're at the hotel and you have Wi-Fi, you turn it on. You leave your hotel, and for the entire day, you do not need to have your phone on Wi-Fi, and it will track where you have gone. Every little street, Hmm. every park, it doesn't just track where you've gone. It draws a beautiful red line through a kind of Google Earth map so you can see where you've been. So if you were on that little street and you think, oh, what was that beautiful street that I was just on in Italy, and I wish I could remember the name of it, it recorded it for you. I love that. Uh, And I think That's called Live Trekker. Live Trekker, yeah, T-R-E-K-K-E-R. Okay. Oh, I know. When you're in, when I'm in Europe sometimes and you want to make a restaurant reservation somewhere over the phone, if you don't have a good command of the language, it can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. So there's an app called The Fork Mm -hmm. uh, in English, and it can be very handy, especially if you're staying at like an Airbnb and there's not like a concierge to help you with things like that. That sounds handy. New York Times travel columnist Stephanie Rosenblum is updating us on some of the new technologies that might enhance our travels this year. Stephanie has also just released a new book about the advantages of traveling solo. It's called Alone Time. We'll talk with her about that later this summer on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find a link to Stephanie's new book and recent travel columns she's written in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Stephanie, a big issue for a lot of travelers these days is just getting through the airport smartly and efficiently. And if you don't fly very much, you know, you just stand in line. But if you travel a lot, people these days are realizing it's worth the trouble to get their pre-check. What else is out there and and what are the trends we should know about if we want to be a little ahead of the curve and and minimize our time in lines and our frustrations uh, at the airport? 
So if you've heard of PreCheck, you may have also heard of something called Global Entry, which is an expedited customs program, U.S. customs program. So if you are landing from any other country back into the United States, rather than wait on the long line, the immigration line, you go to these kiosks, you've probably seen them at the airports, and you put your fingerprints down. It's a biometric system, and you put your passport down as well to be scanned. Press a few buttons and you're on your way. It is very fast um, for the most part. <laughs> now now more people have gotten hip to it, so it's a little longer. They used to be incredibly fast, uh, and now sometimes you have to wait. And is the only time you use that is when you're coming back from an international trip? Yes, that's right. But the pre-check thing, that's great for domestic flights, and I've noticed there's something out there called Clear. I've got pre-check, and I'm very happy with that. Uh, mm-hmm. But what is Clear? Is that something even better? No, it's something different. So PreCheck is a government-run program. Clear is not a government-run program. But what they do is, similar to Global Entry, you submit biometric information to them ahead of time. And you pay, I think it's about $175. It might be, I think it's $179 actually now. Mm -hmm. And Clear gets you from the point that you enter the airport to the security line where they're already checking your bag. So, you know, with TSA PreCheck, you still have to wait oh, online yeah. to reach someone to have them look at your passport and say, you know, okay, go ahead. You can now put your things through the uh, right. x-ray machine. Clear allows you, once you scan your fingers or your iris, it works with either, someone then moves you to the line where you put your luggage to go through the x-ray machine. So you're jumping that part. So it's basically like paying extra at Disneyland to skip the line. That's correct, yes. Something else I'd like to talk about is crowdsourcing sites. Why would somebody eat Tex-Mex in Paris? Because it's number one on TripAdvisor. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about crowdsourcing sites uh, like TripAdvisor? So there is a great story that people should Google that ran in Vice magazine about a guy who decided that he wanted to have the number one restaurant in London on TripAdvisor, like rated number one. So he did it, but it wasn't real. He gamed the system, and he wanted to do it to prove that it could be gamed, that you could, you know, convince people that there was a hot restaurant that everybody was going yeah. to. That they, It is worth looking up. If you Google The Shed London TripAdvisor, you'll find it. But to your point, yes, I think on one hand, these things are very helpful because you can see, you know, how people feel about a place. But the opinion you care about is the opinion of somebody who has your values and your travel intentions. So if you're looking on TripAdvisor and let's say you're looking to do solo travel and you're looking to see other solo travelers and maybe you can see that they're profile is something like yours, that might be of more value to you than Mm. just taking anybody's opinion, you know, because like the person looking to do like the family vacation may not be looking to do the same thing that you're doing and you may not value the same things. And there's just a, when you think of uh, all the comments that would be about a restaurant or a hotel in London or something like that, first of all, there are friends of the business, there are enemies of the business, there are companies mm-hmm. in India that make their living writing bogus comments for companies that want to game the system. Do you really want those kind of inputs into how you choose where you're going to have dinner tonight in London? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't give it much heed. The way I try to look at it is I try to find a trend in mm-hmm. the things that people are writing, not one person's, mm-hmm. you know, if there's w- one person who had a terrible experience, you can also tell with these things, you're reading them in the tone. If somebody just wants to 
you know, complain to complain. or So I try to read many things. And then I just say, hmm, I've now seen a dozen or half a dozen people all saying that this hotel is pretty yeah. loud. Yeah. Then I'll say, okay, Gives I think sense. that's a good way to do it. Stephanie Rosenblum's keeping us up to date on travel trends this year on Travel with Rick Steves. Stephanie's columns are a regular feature of the New York Times travel section, and she's just written Alone Time, a book to explore the advantages of traveling solo. Stephanie, I'd like to just wrap things up by your prediction. How will travel be different for us in 2050 because of uh, consumer-oriented technical innovations? Well, I think what we're going to see is we're going to be interfacing with machines a lot more than we already are. You know, you and I were just talking a little bit ago about, oh, you can, you know, use your biometrics to move more quickly through security. But what the the Homeland Security has specifically said that they are aiming to have boarding be completely a biometric process in the United States where you're not getting on a plane with a piece of paper. You're getting on with your fingerprint or your face. Hmm. And that's game changing. There are a lot of privacy rights groups saying, hold on about that. But Mm -hmm. I think one way or another, whatever happens, we are moving to a place where we are having fewer interactions with humans and more interactions with machines, for better or for worse. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us and and helping us out. Thanks so much for having me. You've often heard me talk about the Dingle Peninsula. The southwest corner of Ireland is one of my favorite parts of the country. A lifelong Dingle man returns to travel with Rick Steves in just a bit to remind us what makes his home turf so special. But up next, let's look at what's turned Iceland into one of travel's hotspots this year. A radio DJ from Seattle finds himself going back to Iceland every year to explore the country's impressive contemporary music scene as well as its dramatic landscapes and a Viking culture that dates back more than a thousand years. We're at 877-333-7425. Iceland is hot. Its volcanoes and hot springs, otherworldly landscapes and glaciers, and views of the northern lights have helped propel it onto the must-see travel list of many an outdoors lover. And while their weather can turn brutal, it only seems to fuel the Icelanders' creative juices. They've developed quite a reputation for singers and musicians in rock, alternative, experimental, and avant-garde music at a level that punches well above what you'd expect from such a small population. Music empresario Kevin Cole goes to Iceland each year to check out what's new at its music festivals. He often features what he finds on the radio show he hosts on KEXP, an alternative music station in Seattle. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us why Iceland has become one of his favorite places in the world. Kevin, welcome. Rick, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. What a cool thing. For 10 years, you've gone to Iceland in November for this music festival, And at the same time, you've had a chance to uh, gain a a real affinity for the country itself. Yeah, Iceland is an amazing place to explore. I've been there pretty much all seasons and, uh, you know, love going there for the music experience, but also go there for vacations as well. But now Iceland is, I've been there too, and uh, it's very trendy. People love it. But really, it's pretty barren. It gets dark early. It's kind of nasty in the winter. It's got 300,000 people. It's, It's a tiny little country. Stranded in the Atlantic, uh, halfway between, you know, Norway and Greenland. What do you think is the magic? Why do people go more to Iceland than to Norway? 
Well, I think there's sort of an allure to Iceland that's part of it. But if it wasn't an awesome experience, it wouldn't be able to sustain that kind of allure, right? Right. The landscape is so dramatic. You hear it being described as otherworldly, which it truly is. You know, there's tons of movies that are filmed there, like Prometheus, that need some exotic-looking Mars. That is a big thing, because when I was out touring way out into the volcanic sticks, you know, and you could see, if you were a movie producer, yeah, this is where I want to film that exotic scene. Yeah. And you can experience that. And it's still very pristine. Even as tourism has built up over the last decade, it's still off the beaten path and you're going to have a really remarkable, authentic You know, experience. a fascinating thing from a historical point of view is, of course, there were a few little tiny towns, but until World War II, there wasn't really a lot of serious development and building there. And in World War II, it became suddenly important strategically because it's a great base for your Air Force. And uh, after World War II, you had a lot of uh, building that beforehand it was mostly humble sod buildings and little little tiny huts. Yeah, it was so isolated pre-World War II. Actually, the bases there transformed the culture and the music culture because it was then that Americans brought rock and roll music over to Iceland. Okay. And, uh, and that, that mixed with uh, some local passion for music and totally, kindled something it, cool. It totally did. That sparked a youth culture in Iceland. Well, if you're going to Iceland, of course, you got to go to Reykjavik. What are some highlights for you outside of Reykjavik? Because you're going to see the capital city. You're going to see the Blue Lagoon, that, that huge uh, spa out by the airport. What else would you do? The touristy things in Iceland, that sometimes turns off some travelers and they try and avoid what might be the touristy hotspots. In Iceland, it's very unspoiled. Go to the Blue Lagoon. <laughs> go, to the... Go, go do the Golden Circle, which is a day trip out of Reykjavik that takes you basically to three sort of main stops. One is Golfoss, this incredible giant waterfall. It's like a mini Grand Canyon. And part of what's cool about Iceland is you do have these mountains, but a lot of the land is sort of flat lava fields. So the first time I went and, and went to Golfoss, part of the what made it such a remarkable experience is driving up, there were no billboards, there were no signs. I didn't even know if I was going to the right place. I saw a parking lot. And it wasn't until I got to the parking lot and went over a little hill that suddenly this huge canyon opened up and this incredibly powerful waterfall. So there's really a pristine quality. If you wanted to make a calendar just with great waterfalls for the oh. photographs, you could do it just in Iceland alone. Yeah, everywhere you go, there's a huge... There's a huge water. Every time you turn a corner. <laughs> and there's something about the light, the angle of the sun in Iceland, especially in the summer, is... It's a prolonged magic hour. You, so, you feel yeah. suspended in that. So it's great for taking photographs. A lot of people are interested in seeing the northern lights. Yes. And I see posters of this, and it goes, wow. But in practice, do you actually see that, wow, that green sky from the northern lights? Uh, I'm still hoping to. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would be, I'm a little skeptical on promotional kind of uh, wow photographs because it's going to paint something in its finest light. But I, I think that, that is an attraction. Not, not, not the wow. But You've seen the, a little bit of the green? Oh, for sure. Oh, um, that's good. Multiple times. And uh, one trip, uh, there's the Imagine Peace Tower on an island, uh, uh -huh. you know, in the uh, Foxa Bay of, of uh -huh. Reykjavik. So when you're in Reykjavik looking out, you see this amazing uh, light tower that it's a memorial to John Lennon that Yoko Ono constructed. And um, I got to go to the island. Uh, they lighted on John Lennon's birthday, which is October 9th. They turned it off on December 8th, the day he was shot. So for about six weeks, every night, it's out there. You can see it everywhere. Oh, from, my goodness. From, it, it's super powerful. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Iceland with Kevin Cole from Seattle's KEXP Radio. Kevin is an annual visitor to Iceland, and he's been enamored with the explosive contemporary music scene there. You can stream Kevin's radio show in the afternoons from 2 to 6 Pacific time at kexp.org. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Chris is calling in from El Cajon in California. Hi, Chris. Thanks for your call. Oh, I'm glad to be on. We're planning an upcoming trip to Iceland, and I wanted to know if we could go there in May or June or September, October, the shoulder seasons, or whether that would be a bad idea because of uh, likelihood of bad weather. Chris, uh, you'd be good going in May, June, and uh, September, October. You're going to run into a mix of weather. What I recommend to travelers to Iceland is no matter what time of year you go, bring winter wear and bring a swimsuit. <laughs> that is such a good line. Bring a, a heavy coat and a swimsuit. Yeah, any time of year. Uh, I've been in a geothermal pool in July and had sleep come down, but you're going to be good those months. I've had the same skepticism about going off-season, and one thing you want to remember is it is so trendy that in July and August it's going to be just packed, and you're going to pay a lot, and you're going to have a hard time getting rooms and so on. And uh, I've thought, well, do you really want to go shoulder season in Iceland? And I've talked to so many people and say, yeah, just dress appropriately, but it can be great uh, without the peak season weather. Yeah. Now, one of the things we want to do is drive around the island. We're not going to be spending most of our time in the capital. Is it likely that you have some sunshine or at least a cessation of rain during part of the days, even in the shoulder seasons? Absolutely. I've found that it doesn't rain that that much. During those shoulder seasons, you're going to have a good eight hours of light. Remember, the weather blows through. You can have five different weathers a day. Exactly. So if you look out your window in the morning from your, your little bed and breakfast and go, oh, it's rainy, let's stay in, that's not the right approach. you got to get out there and do it. And remember, two hours later, you're going to go, wow, it's gorgeous. And that rain just freshened everything up. Yep. And then after lunch, it'll sock in again. And then late in the afternoon, ah, it's beautiful. They always say there's no um, bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. Exactly. Bring a good shell. That sounds very encouraging. Um, The other question I have is, being that we're going to do a driving trip around the island, we're going to have to spend several nights in different villages and towns around the island. And I'm wondering if it's better to use the travel agency in Reykjavik to make all those bookings, or is it better just to try to do it on your own? And what would you recommend as far as trying to book hotels or B&Bs on your own and a rental car versus using a travel agency in Reykjavik? The way I've done it in the past is mostly online myself, where you get a good opportunity to look at uh, the various different... uh, Yeah, there's lots of online services, and I would stress that Iceland is just jamming right now, and everybody is building cottages out back, and they're almost automated in the countryside. It's so sparsely populated. You make a reservation, and you come in, and and there's a little note for you, and there's the key, and and, and here's some coffee pot, and uh, you're on your own. Yeah, and it's almost like the Airbnb world has become its own cottage industry in Iceland, and and there's a lot of great Airbnbs. But you do want to get that in advance, because uh, don't underestimate the fact that we're all doing the same thing when we go to Iceland. I would also remind you, Chris, that much as you can enjoy the longer hours during the summertime and drive until 9 or 10 o'clock at night and be just fine, in the off-season, take a hard look at when does it get dark because you don't want to be out driving in the middle of nowhere in Iceland after dark. Have a good time, Chris. Oh, thank you very much. Iceland has vaulted from obscurity to become one of the world's trendiest destinations for the curious traveler. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Kevin Cole from Seattle's KEXP Radio. He explores Iceland's vibrant music scene every year and the attractions that have made the land of fire and ice a hit among travelers looking to experience the primal forces of nature in the far north. 
John's calling from Arlington in Texas. John, are you heading off to Iceland? I am, Rick, and thanks for taking my call. I'm going to be in Iceland in September, and my wife and I are looking forward to it. The thing that we always try to do when we go to a new place like this is try to understand the food and and the kind of meals that we need to try to have when we're in a particular country because we always enjoy trying new things. So I'm just kind of wondering, what are the kind of foods and tastes that we should look for when we're there? I enjoyed reading uh, from Kevin that uh, he found Iceland was kind of a meat and potatoes place until recently, and now, like the music, it's becoming a little a little more uh, creative and fun and and uh, spicy. Yeah, it seems like after the uh, the banking crisis of two thousand eight, Iceland has really focused internally, a lot of entrepreneurship and a lot of creativity being expressed in things like the restaurants. In in Reykjavik itself, there's so many restaurants, you will have no problem finding all sorts of, of different types of food. Obviously, being, you know, an isolated island, there's going to be a ton of seafood and great seafood. There's a Michelin star restaurant called Dill that's amazing. Adjacent to that is a really incredible pizza but you're, place. But you're living on a DJ's budget, so you're, that's easy for you. What about the <laughs> no, rest no, of us? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Iceland's pretty expensive, isn't it? It, it is <laughs> expensive. So, before my first trip in 2005, I was reading a guidebook that said, the food's horrible, uh, the weather's awful, and uh, you're going to love it. <laughs> and, and it was all three of those things. But the food is actually really great now. You, you can find great neighborhood bakeries where you can pick up yeah. local bread, rye bread. Um, oh, I, when I was in Reykjavik, the tourist board wanted me to go out and check out these restaurants. And they were very small, creative, full of life, full of local people. Expensive. You yeah. want to order carefully. Yep. You know, plan to spend a little extra on the food, a picnic one night, and you go to a restaurant the next night, perhaps. Exactly. Okay. Are there any particular times that people normally dine or eat out, eat their evening meals? We just always like to know what time is the best time to go out. There any cultural insights? Yeah, that might yes. be different. Yeah, it's it's not a super late night dining type of atmosphere. You can certainly find some late night places, but I, I would think more your six, seven, eight p.m. Hey, John, thanks for your call. Thank you. Rick. Have fun on your trip. Thank you. And Yannet is calling from Pembroke Pines in Florida. Hi, Yannet. Hi, Rick. I'm planning the trip later this summer, and I wanted to know what would be the best place to see the Northern Lights. I know that. In summer, they're not going to be there, but maybe for a future trip. Okay, so is that a seasonal thing, uh, Kevin, about the Northern Lights? It tends to be seasonal, and it tends to be more of a fall-winter type of uh, experience. And there's a lot of tours, and there's also a really great website online. If you just search Aurora Borealis Iceland, it will take Mm. you to an official site that tracks daily the sort of ranking for your chance of catching the Northern Lights. I heard that if you eat some of that rotten shark, you can see it any time of year. (laughs) That is likely true. (laughs) Is it a location-specific, or are you able to see it all throughout Iceland? Um, So it's always going to be spotty. It's never going to be all over Iceland all at the same time. You can see them sometimes in Reykjavik itself, uh, but your chances for uh, the best experience are to go someplace where it's darker and there's no city light pollution. I've just driven out an hour out of town and just driven off the side of the road and waited at times and have seen them. You've been to Iceland every year for 10 years now or something. Uh, How have you noticed the infrastructure has changed over that period? There's more guardrails. 
the first time I went, I went to this amazing waterfall and there were basically, uh, you could walk right to the edge and there was one of those universal signs with a, a stick figure falling off a cliff with a circle and a line across it, right? That was the warning, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now there's, like, if you go to Gulfos, that amazing waterfall, there's a beautiful ramp down to a platform so you can get really close, but you're not going to be exposed. Are there more like parking lots and yes. information posts and so on because there's more tourism? There are, and it's very tastefully done. Right. Uh, I think as they built the infrastructure and it's all yeah. happened in the last decade or so, that, yeah. that, that's been something they've been very conscious of and trying to not spoil it with too much. And you're talking about the Golden Circle. Yes. And we have the one stop was the Great Waterfall. Yep. A couple more stops. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite places and a place I try to go every single time I go to Iceland is Thinglevir. And Thinglevir is a national park. It's on the Golden Circle. And it's where one of the first parliaments of mankind actually mm. assembled. Oh, I've seen dramatic, romantic paintings of that, I think. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And it's where the North American and the Eurasian plates are splitting the continental drift. Uh, so there's actually a little bit of a canyon you can walk through where where the two plates are moving. Is apart. that just coincidence that they met there? I I don't know because I think there's a spirit and there's a, a spirit there because you know people ask me why don't you cover Iceland in my program until this year when we finally got our guidebook to Iceland out and I was wondering is it actually Europe and from a geological point of view it's half Europe and half America because the two tectonic plates come together there right there and yep. half of Iceland is from a geological point of view in America and half's in Europe. Maybe that's why the people assembled there too for uh, yeah to map out their democracy. Okay, so you got on this golden circle is the classic one day long yeah. day of sightseeing outside of Reykjavik for a sampling of the countryside charms. Yep, you got the waterfall, you got the spot where the historic uh, parliament met, and you've got geyser, which is uh, actually a couple of geysers, and it's geyser is an Icelandic word that we've now all come to think about as what it is, right? That would be appropriate, that geyser would be an Icelandic yeah, word. It's think, a land of geysers and, yeah. and geothermal heat. Yes, and I think gai means rush or to rush out of, perhaps. Uh-huh. So on that circle, those are the three main attractions. There's other little side ones, too. There's more waterfalls. <laughs> but your, your point was, don't be one of these tourists that doesn't want to do the touristy things. In Iceland, even the touristy things are great, like it's, the Golden Circle. Yes, and get out of Reykjavik. Good the Golden Circle is a one-day trip. It's easy and it's uh, remarkable. Janet, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kevin Cole. Kevin's a DJ at Seattle's KEXP Radio. He goes to Iceland every year to broadcast live from the Iceland Airwaves Music Festival. And Kevin joins us today to talk about traveling in Iceland. Kevin, let's just finish off talking about this festival. What's the scene during this festival that you go to every year? The festival is called Iceland Airwaves. It is in early November now, and it attracts five or 6,000 music lovers from around the world. So right there, that is kind of a filter where you have these people who are very curious and willing to travel halfway around the world. So there's a creative energy around that. There's usually about 200 bands. It's not a typical festival. So it's easy access? I mean, you don't, yes. you don't need to have a ticket long in advance. You don't need to be rich. You, you're going to see a lot of live music. Um, you don't need to be rich. It's reasonable, but you, it does sell out. I would buy a ticket a month in advance. Okay, and do that online through the yes. festival. It's a great way to just to have an unusual experience because you're going to see bands that you've never, ever heard of before that you'll probably never even be able to pronounce their names that, you, that will never, ever play in wherever, in Seattle. So you're going to have experiences that you're not going to have anywhere else. And a lot of this music, Kevin, would be actually Icelandic bands. Yes. 
there's about 250 bands who play Iceland Airwaves, and probably 150 of them are Icelandic. God, that sounds like fun. It's amazing. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Kevin Cole, for sharing uh, a unique angle. Rick, thank you so much. It's on been a beautiful a, island. It's such yeah. a pleasure. All right. Happy travels, and maybe I'll see you at the festival. Great. Kevin Cole is the program director for Seattle's KEXP Radio, where he hosts The Afternoon Show. They stream at kexp.org and on YouTube. Kevin will be back with us on Travel with Rick Steves later this year to tell us more about the Iceland Airwaves Festival that he broadcasts from in the fall. About 800 miles to the southeast, you'll find another ruggedly beautiful island. And the greenery and the welcome you'll find along the west coast of Ireland promises to make it one of your favorite destinations, too. A hometown guide to County Kerry's Dingle Peninsula is next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Ireland's one of my favorite countries in Europe, and uh, i got to say my favorite place in Ireland is in the southwest corner, the little town of Dingle on the peninsula by the same name. It's got all the clichés you hope to find in Ireland, but they don't feel like clichés. It's today's Ireland, just like yesterday's Ireland, coming together on the most scenic corner of that beautiful Emerald Isle. And we're joined today to talk about that by a son of the town of Dingle, Dara Herlihy. And Dara was born and raised in Dingle Peninsula. Joins us now. Dara, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rick. What was Dingle like before tourists came? Dingle, it was a very small, quaint fishing town, um, particularly in the, the 1840s. And when we were colonized by the English, it became a very small region. And when the local Irish had um, massive unemployment, they were given an opportunity. They were told they could either change from Catholicism and become Protestants. And if they did so, they would be given jobs and they'd be given houses, which obviously very important. 1840s Ireland, nothing else was happening. So the locals decided, you know, we will change from Catholicism. We'll become practicing uh, Protestants. And as a result, we'll be given a house, food and water. So they were given their house, their food and water. And within months, they were back to being Catholics. So they outsmarted the English yeah. in that respect. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you go around Dingle Plinsona, you can look at the very, where the, where the dirt runs out and the rocks begin and see where they planted the potatoes back yep, in yes, 150 yep, years ago. Absolutely, yes. It's a history that's only around the corner. It's a land that's been, you know, lived on for over 6,000 years, but it's steeped in history. And that dirt was made by, yeah. by hard-working farmers. Absolutely. Taking yeah. the seaweed and the, and the sand. That's it, and the beds that remain from famine times. When people are thinking about going to the west coast of Ireland to get this classic, clichetic Irish beauty, the Ring of Kerry has all the promotional budget and yeah. the, the most of the tourism, and it's undeniably beautiful. How would you describe the Ring of Kerry, which everybody knows about, and Dingle, which is all also quite touristy but smaller? I suppose what I found about the Ring of Kerry, and, and I know personally from guiding these uh, tours around the Ring of Kerry and from being a native of the area, the Ring of Kerry is an absolutely beautiful drive, but you drive for hours. And I think regardless of how beautiful a place is, there's only so much your brain can process at any one time. And there's only so much you can absorb. There's only so many plantations and sheep that you can actually physically enjoy within a time frame. So I find that by doing the Dingle Peninsula, it's almost like a short synopsis of what the Ring of Kerry is. And within a two to two and a half hour you know, time period, you walk away with this wow factor. Whereas after doing a carry, you walk away with this, God, I'm knackered, I need a pint of Guinness feeling. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's a good way to put it. That's so true. It's that 
Speaking of beer, Dingle is like a pint-sized ring of Kerry. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it's an open-air folk museum with all of these uh, medieval or, or dark yeah. age stone uh, huts and so on. And, and the town of Dingle is it's sort of a ramshackle little hard-scrabble town that's been gaily painted with all sorts of pastels. Now, my understanding is a couple generations ago, all these wonderful pastel pink and, and green and, and lavender facades were not there. Everything was just kind of yeah, dreary what, gray. What happened is that Ireland, um, you know, we were colonized for so long, and in the 1980s, the Irish government came along and they said, we're going to start this little incentive called the Tidy Towns. And what we're going to try and do is we're going to incentivize Irish people to, first of all, have tidy towns, and second of all, to have colorful towns. So let's get rid of these drab, boring, gray colors. Oh, okay. Just give the whole island a, a coat of paint. Just give the whole island a coat of paint. And that's, you know? our, that's our traditional look at Ireland <laughs> today, which is actually is. a 1980s yeah. tourism initiative. It is. And to further this, what we're going to do is we're going to give the little towns an award. So for the tidiest town, in other words, the most, not just about litter, but litter being, littering yeah. part of it, but also who's the most colorful, who's the most inventive. And we're going to give out awards for this. And there's very little in terms of prizes for these awards, aside from the sheer prestige of having a Tidy Towns Award, Did which is very important. Tinkle has never won the Tidy Towns, uh, I won't lie. <laughs> However, it has been a contender on numerous occasions. Well, that's good. And, and it's an amazingly charming place. I understand that there's a courthouse, but it's open like, it's rarely open. The courthouse is open the last Friday of every month. It's open for about an hour. About know, an so hour. The last, yeah. so if there's any legal business to take care of. The, the whole crux of this is there are no legal issues in Dingle. And in Dingle, we're, one we're of too my, busy having fun. Too busy having fun. And, and one of my images of Dingle is during the day, all these young guys earning their living, rolling around kegs of beer, rolling the empty ones out and rolling the full ones in. And there are certainly a lot of kegs going in and out of Dingle. Dara Herlihy's our guide to Ireland's scenic Dingle Peninsula right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Dara's family runs the music shop in town where impromptu jam sessions of traditional Irish music are a regular feature. Dara's also recently opened Nelligan's Bar in Dingle Town where he features live music from visiting bands and singers every night. Ginger's listening in from Muncie, Indiana and she's on the line at 877-333-7425. Ginger, what would you like to ask Dara about visiting Dingle? Well, I have a question. We're coming to Ireland for a couple of weeks, and our first stop is going to be a couple of nights on the Dingle Peninsula. We were thinking, first of all, spending maybe our first night trying to drive in from Shannon to, and I may pronounce it wrong, uh, Castle Gregory on the north side of the island, or the peninsula. Yeah, Mm -hmm and then coming on to Dingle the next day. Yeah, I'll be um, honest with you, if you're driving from Shannon, it's going to be far more straightforward to drive directly from Shannon to Dingle. Castle Gregory is a great little area, but it's a tip of the peninsula that peaks out overlooking the Dingle Peninsula, and it's fantastic if you like surfing, and that's really what Castle Gregory is famous for. It's a surfing beach. Hmm. Oh, okay. What you're better off doing is doing what Rick does and taking a few days in one particular place and using that place as a base to explore these areas. Castle Gregory is probably only a 20-minute drive from Dingle. Okay, great. And the great thing, Ginger, about Dingle is you've got so much action every night. It's like so many charming, friendly, economic B&Bs, and you're part of the community. And then each night, you've got all these very hardworking, competitive restaurants, wonderful food. And then there's probably six or eight pubs with live music, and it's all free just for the, for the cost of a pint of beer or Coke or whatever. You can enjoy live Irish folk music on every corner. 
And if you yeah, want that some, wonderful. if you want some more details when you get into Dingletown, my father and I own a music store. I'm not plugging the music store, right. but most people go to the tourist office. They come to us afterwards. They go, God, we should have come here first. <laughs> What's so the music store? Pop called? in. We'll tell you where to go, what to do, where to stay. You don't need to worry about anything. What's so, the store called? Uh, it's called Shuppa Kjol on Dangen, which is the Irish for Dingle Music Store. But you ask anybody for Dara or Michael's Music Store, and there's only one in Dingle, so you want. That's a nice thing. I Thank you so, so much. You know, that's what I love about <laughs> Ireland. Things are so charming. It, it reminds me of why somebody might be called Michael Plummer. I went to a town and I go, where's Michael? Oh, you mean Michael the Plumber or Michael the Carpenter? <laughs> Michael Plummer. Someone yeah. sent me uh, a gift over Christmas and uh, all she did is she wrote, Dara Hurley, he'd dingle. That was <laughs> it, you know. And, that was, and it got there. <laughs> and it got there. So Ginger, thank you, thanks Trish, for your for call. Uh-huh, and thank you so much. Have a great time in dingle. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Andrew's on the line from Eugene in Oregon. Andrew, thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. We uh, went to Dingle with our two adult children. We've traveled quite a bit, and I am prone to be cautious of overstating things, but Dingle is everything anyone has ever said it was. I hope you managed to hit a couple of bars and get a bit of a music scene. Oh, yeah, that was the best part. We walked in and our first night and just sat at John Benny's Pub to get something to eat, and... Donna Hennessy and Elias Kennedy, two world-class musicians, Absolutely fantastic. were performing right in front of us. That's it. I'm glad you got to see that live. So that's John Benny's Pub, and, and these are two world-class musicians uh, Eilish, that happen Nikaneda to be... and Donna. They happen to live in Dingle? They sure do. And I yeah. used at Carnegie Hall in New York just January last. Really? And you can see them right there after dinner? That's it. Yeah, well, and yeah, and we had no idea they were playing. We just wanted to eat, and we took a bench, and we were right in, in the front there. Andrew, when you were in Dingle, did you explore off the coast to the Blasket Islands? Because that is sort of one step further, isn't it? Yeah, we, we didn't get out to the islands themselves, but we stopped at the Blasket Center, and I really did, it's such a wonderful interpretive center. I really felt like I was in another time while we were in that center. The, the story just captivated me, and I, I wish we'd had time to get out there. So people know, just, Andrew, for our listeners, uh, the Blasket Island community was, in a lot of ways, the last traditional old-world Irish community. They lived on this island off the west, southwest tip of Ireland, Blasket Islands. They were just evacuated a couple generations ago. But 1953. 1953? Yeah. And they were um, a small, hard-scrabble community with some amazing poets and close to nature. And it was one part of Ireland that didn't suffer in the potato famine because they were not relying on potatoes, they were relying on harvesting the sea. Absolutely right, yeah. And then there was Tim Flower, uh, an English author who came over to the island and he found their way of life absolutely fascinating and he bought a gramophone with them and he encouraged them to write down all their pieces about their life and about their hardship and it's because of, of Tim that a lot of this work was actually published and became world famous and that the Blasket Island story is shared with a lot of us and passed down through generations. And that, in a sense, was a sort of a time capsule of old Irish ways on this remarkable island. Today it's uninhabited, but you can go there very easily from Dingletown or from the tip of the peninsula. Absolutely. But what Andrew is talking about is the Blasket Island Centre. Yeah, and you had a beautiful view of the island from Which is on centre. the mainland looking oh, over at the islands. Yeah. And as you said, Andrew, it's one of the best interpretive centres anywhere. It's like incredible if you're interested in uh, local cultures. It told the story so well and somehow they managed to capture the atmosphere of the, the islands in that building. They really did. Andrew, thanks for your call. Yes, thank you. I was the boy in Canada. I was the boy in Canada. I was the boy in Canada. I was the boy in Canada.
Deborah Herlihy is taking your calls on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK. We're finding out why his home turf on the Dingle Peninsula is such a favorite corner of Ireland. James is on the line in Sigourney, Iowa. Hi, James. Uh, my wife and I are going to uh, the Dingle area for about three days. So my question, again, is uh, relevant to the Great Blasket Island. Perhaps your, uh, your local expert there can reference any tour guides that could take us out of the island and give us a archaeologic or heritage tour of the island. Is there any organized tour out on the island? There's uh, no actual Great organized Blasket. tour on the island itself. There are two options to get to the island. You can go one from Dingle, you can go on Billy Callery's boat. It's about 35 euros, it's a 12-seater boat, and it brings you directly from Dingle. What I like about that is you get to see the peninsula along the way, and it's only a one-hour boat trip, but it's a nice way to see the landscape as you approach the island. The other alternative is you can drive out to a place called Dunchin. It's only about a 15-minute drive from Dingletown, and there's a ferry crossing, and the boats go back and forth several times per day. They charge something about 20 euros, so it's quite a small fee. As you're crossing, they'll give you a little bit of history about the island. As we just discussed, the Blasket Centre is a great way of interpreting the island prior to going on to it, and from there, it's a very easy self-guided tour. My memory is that there's there's more on the Blasket Island Centre on the mainland about Precisely. the Blasket culture than there is in the ghost town on Blasket Island. All you got is a bunch of rabbits on Blasket Island. Pretty much, yeah, and a couple of uh, goats and uh, local cows. I mean, the island is lovely, but personally, I would prefer to spend more time focusing on the peninsula yeah, itself. I think so. The island's know. a bit of a trek. If you've got three days, it's a bit tight to spend an entire afternoon on You know, there. I took the boat from Dingle Town, and we got to fiddle around with fungi on the way. Yes. Derek, tell us about the famous dolphin in Dingle. Uh, fungi came to Dingle. Uh, we just celebrated his 30th birthday um, two years ago, so... I suppose what makes fungi, the Dingle Dolphin, so amazing is the fact that uh, you know it, like a lot of people, came to Dingle 32 years ago and never left. You know, he's amazingly <laughs> friendly. I mean, you, you go out. There's these tour boats that go out there, and, and fungi will play with the tourists and jump and. Give I have a, I have a little speedboat I take out on the water, and you go out there, and he loves the smaller boats. He loves the sound of the engine. And uh, when you go out there, if you're running in one boat and there's another boat running beside you, he will jump up between the two boats. And he's got two schools of dolphins come to visit him twice a year, which is an absolute spectacle. They're like clockwork, so it's like family coming to say hello. It's a big deal for tourism in Dingle, I think. Certainly You better take good care of fungi. (laughs) Hey, Jake, so your question about Blasket Islands, uh, you could buy a a little book or something, but it's mostly just a scenic walk through a ghost town, and then you can learn about it all at the Blasket Island Center on the mainland. Okay, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. There's so much to see in this area. I mean, people must be kind of wondering, why are you focusing just on Dingle? Well, you see Dublin, that's the big city. Go up to Belfast for a little of what's going on in the north, and then head to the southwest of Ireland, and Dingle Peninsula gives you everything you need. You've got the medieval beehive huts, the cloakens where the the monks would be hating out. I mean, it's amazing to think the most literate part of Europe during the reign of Charlemagne in the year 800 was in Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. Didn't Charlemagne import Irish monks to be his scribes? uh, Exactly, yeah. When nobody else in Europe could read. Yeah. You Irish people. You go to Dingle Peninsula, and there must be literally thousands of stony remnants of your mysterious past. There there certainly are, you know, and there's some beautiful sites in the Dingle Peninsula. What's your favorite medieval site in Ireland, um, in in Dingle? In in Dingle, it's difficult to say. I mean, I suppose probably the two of the most significant for me are Keel MacAther, which is the Church of MacAther, which is the remnants of a 12th century church. And also, it's it's a wonderful example because you have a pagan standing stone and you have a Christian standing stone. And if you look traditionally at the Catholic Church, they will tell you that paganism and Christianity never coexisted. But a site such as 
this has a perfect example of a pagan standing stone and a Christian standing stone. So that were contemporaneous? Precisely, in the 12th so century. So it wasn't a Christian site built atop a pagan site, but it was two that were contemporaneous. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you look at Galler's Oratory, which the you know that's very what I was well. Thinking. This that's is a another perfect stonework. And, it's, and to this day, it's... There's no mortar. It's stacked absolutely with stones. Absolutely perfection. How old is that church? 7th century. So 1,200 yeah, years. They say 7th century-ish in Ireland. Right, well, know. 1,200 years, 1,300 years, <laughs> yeah. it's old. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dara Herlihy. We're talking about Dingle Peninsula, Dingle Town. Gail's on the phone from Strongsville in Ohio. Hi, Gail. Thanks for your call. Hi there. Well, it's wonderful to be with you and so wonderful to talk about Dingle because we had a most marvelous day there a couple of years ago on a part of a nine-day trip to Ireland. We started out stopping at a sign that said that there was surfing, and we were curious about that, so drove off the road and found ourselves on Inch Beach, which was the site of the opening scene in the movie from 1970s, Ryan's Daughter. Mm. And it was low tide, the sun was out, the sky was blue, we could walk a quarter of a mile out on the beach, and it was just glimmering and glistening, and it was spectacular. We spent some time at Sleahead, which was probably as beautiful as anything anyone could imagine as far as the coastline goes. Yeah, when I think of that Sleahead, that's the very, very west tip of Ireland, our southwest tip. And isn't there some sort of a famous thing about the waves? Next parish, America. Where they stand there yeah. and they look out at the scene and say, ah, oh, the next, next parish, parish America. is America. Yeah. Yeah. It was a way of looking over their family after their mass immigration from the Blasket Islands. Because yeah. the population of Dingle Peninsula before the famine was, I think, 40,000. How many people would you estimate are there after? After the famine? Or, or today? Yeah. Today in Dingle Peninsula, yeah. there's about 5,000 people in the 5, per- permanent residence. So you see all over the peninsula, you see the remnants of uh, villages that are gone. Absolutely, and people, you found they more moved to a nucleus such as Dingle where they could survive. Right. So the impact is just unstated. You know? So Gail, you saw the, you're talking about the uh, the dramatic scenery out on the very southwest oh, it's, tip. It's, it's spectacular. I mean, you go from rolling green hills and a lot of the, you know, the stone walls that you typically see around the roadside, and then you get these gorgeous coastlines that are rough and craggy and Caribbean blue, waters. They're just beautiful. You're making and, nostalgic uh, here. And everything we did there that day was just so beautiful. I mean, it, it is very Gaelic, and we stopped at a pub and talked to folks there. Sounds like you need to get back there. Gail, yeah, it was just wonderful. Gail, when you drop in a pub in some remote corner, some little village that has no tourism, did you feel comfortable going into a pub and just chatting with people? Oh, absolutely, yes. Anywhere we went, we were very welcomed and comfortable with interacting with the folks that were there. And as typically you hear about Irish, they, they welcome you with open arms. You know, sure all you do. do is start to interact, and they're just wonderful people. My grandmother was from Ireland, so I always wanted to go, and I'm very taken by the history of how these people endured, you know, the, the famine and continue to have a very strong sense of character, you know, in their life going forward. So it was very meaningful for me to be there. Gail, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, and happy thank travels. you for your show. <laughs> all right, bye now. Dara, when we think about all the conversation we've had on Dingle, it's a town, it's a peninsula, it's an open-air museum, it's a dolphin, it's a great music scene, and it's thriving as far as a little industry that's making the tourist feel welcome. There's wonderful restaurants in Dingle Peninsula. 
just a great place to go when you're planning to go to Ireland. Absolutely, and in my opinion, um, I'm probably slightly biased, but it has everything that we need. And mm. uh, as I say, there's a thriving industry and there's uh, something there for everybody from cheap restaurants to expensive restaurants and the scenery is breathtaking, the breathtaking music is scenery. Par- I, it really is. Fascinating. Uh, I just always remember that when Charles Lindbergh flew from the United States across the Atlantic in 1927 for the first flight across the Atlantic, first piece of land he saw, I understand, was... Uh, what was it, Mount Eagle on, yeah. on Dingle Peninsula? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. But, but he didn't stop. You know, he kept going, unfortunately. He came pretty low, though. You know, I'm sure they tried to catch him. I bet he thought, <laughs> there's that beautiful corner of Ireland. <laughs> hey, Dara Harley, thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank I'm you for having me, Rick. Okay, and in, in Gaelic, how would I say uh, best wishes and happy travels? It's usually what we'd say is, is Slán Gafol, which is bye for now. And okay. that's a very important saying because it's not goodbye, it's goodbye for now. For yeah. now is the important part. How so do I say that? Slán Gafol. Slán gafól. Slán Thank you. Gormágov. Walter Roth, you're welcome. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Plus, Rick has an app for your mobile phone with detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Slán go fóil. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks for Scandinavia, Rick's new Iceland guidebook and a cruise ship guide to the ports of Northern Europe. To learn more, shop online in the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.